LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Mark Stavish, who joins us to discuss his book, Egregores, The Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny. Do you know your own mind? Do you make your own decisions? Are you in control of your life? Or has someone or something else taken over? Beneath a veneer of rational choices, are you really in control of anything at all? One of the most important but little-known concepts of Western occultism is that of the egregore, an autonomous psychic entity created by a collective group mind. An egregore is sustained by belief, ritual and sacrifice and relies upon the devotion of a group of people, from a small coven to an entire nation, for its existence. An egregore that receives enough sustenance can take on a life of its own becoming an independent deity with powers its believers can use to further their own spiritual advancement and material desires. Presenting the first book devoted to the study of egregores, Mark Stavish examines their history from ancient times to the present day with detailed and documented examples and explores how they are created, sustained, directed and destroyed. Stavish provides instructions on how to identify egregores free yourself from a parasitic and destructive collective entity and destroy an egregore should the need arise. Revealing how egregores form the foundation of nearly all human interactions, the author shows how they have moved into popular culture and media, underscoring the importance of intense selectivity in the information we accept and the ways we perceive the world and our place in it. Hello and welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me here. It's, it's taken quite a bit of effort uh, to get us together, and I think the listeners need to know that. Uh, when we deal with unusual topics like this, as my good friends uh, used to say, there can often be quite a bit of interference from a certain other, and uh, we certainly had our share of that. Oh, we certainly have, and uh, I'm not new to this phenomenon either i have to say you're not the first guest that i've had problems with and it, it's always when it's uh how should we take you know challenging topics esoteric matters but in any event we're here now and we're going to be talking today about your latest book uh egregores i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly uh egregores the occult entities that watch over human destiny before we jump into that just tell listeners for those who don't know just a little bit about your background and your work in general well, about the pronunciation first. Since it's Greek, nobody gets it right. It's a potato-potato question. And uh, I'll say egregores or egregores and kind of slide back and forth. So we're all saying it uh, improperly. And uh, I, I've been told the first G is silent, as in gnome. So 
Uh, just a little bit trivia for your listeners, and don't worry about it. As long as we're consistently wrong, that'll be fine. That's it, you know. We're, we're, well, and that's great because uh, we're pre-disaster. You know, everything can only go right from here. <laughs> okay, so uh, just fill listeners in about, uh, as, as I mentioned, your background and your work. Uh, I am the founder and director of the Institute for Hermetic Studies. We offer seminars and workshops on classical uh, and uh, modern hermeticism and, and some related topics. I've been doing this for uh, pretty much most of my life. My uh, background is also in not only hermeticism, but also I have a degrees in theology and counseling, graduate work. I have um, grew up in a family that was involved to some of the members, not everybody, in, in different aspects of uh, esoteric practices going back to uh, Central Europe uh, to the uh, 19th century and, and beyond. So uh, this is all very uh, familiar to me, and uh, I've written extensively about it. I think we're close to 30 books now. Uh, full, five of them, I think, are in various languages, Russian, Portuguese, Estonian, Polish, French, Spanish, you know, the big ones. And uh, that's who I am, and that's what we do. And we've done uh, a lot of calls like this over the last two months because of the phenomenal response to egregores. It's not a big book by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, it's, it's very informative. It's, it's very interesting um, in many ways. Now, egregores I'd come across mentioned sporadically here and there before reading about esoteric subjects over the years, but I was somewhat surprised to learn actually that uh, you uh, believe this is the first book to focus solely on this subject and you feel that others have merely paid lip service to it. Uh, I mentioned something in my recorded introduction about what egregores are and why they matter, but what? why was this important to you? And was, was it partly because there wasn't a, a book really focusing on the subject that made you want to, to, to put this together? Yeah, really, yes. I, I just here, Here's the one time I'll stand on the soapbox and, and pat myself on the back. I do one thing well, and that is take, complex ideas, make them understandable to people without watering them down. And that's because I've, I've written uh, for various media outlets, you know, in the past. I've also done a lot of uh, business writing uh, for technical issues where the decision makers don't understand the information, but they are going to be the deciding factor on whether something gets funded. So that is the one thing I do well is take difficult topics, make them understandable to people and not water it down in the process. And so I, I look at a lot of these topics that are out there, particularly in esotericism, and say, what hasn't been done? Because we can go to any bookstore or go to Amazon or Barnes and Nobles, and we can find what? Even to our own bookshelves. Most people could go there, randomly pick off with their, you know, with their eyes closed, 10 books, throw them away, and they probably never miss them because so much of the information is often repetitive. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted everything that we put out there to be meaningful and useful to the reader in some fashion. And when it came to egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny, uh, I was uh, sitting with Jocelyn Godwin in a cafe, uh, a lost dog cafe, Binghamton, New York. We were having lunch and uh, I just got in there and I said, you know, I'm thinking about writing a monograph. It really isn't going to be a book, really. It's going to be a monograph, something a little smaller. 
on Erdogan, and he, his, his response is, well, thank God, because if, if you don't do it, I'll have to. Because this is a topic we had talked about off and on, and I talked about it with other folks. And you see it scattered across modern esoteric literature and some of the classical literature. But it's often not well, really gone into in detail. So that was the factor that brought this book together. There's going to be something out there for people to read that it could, they could at least begin to wrap their heads around the concept and why it was important to them. Yeah, a lot of esoteric tomes that I've read over the years, and I use the word tomes advisedly, have been very interesting sort of academically, theoretically, but they don't really seem to have much application in the real world, if I can use that phrase, in everyday life. But this this matters. This clearly has a great deal of relevance to all our lives, individually and collectively. So just, I said in the introduction a bit about this, but why is this important? Because egregores are social control mechanisms. And we are engaged with these all the time, whether we know it or not. Now, there are two types of egregores. There's the kind which we think of mostly, which is a group consciousness, a group entity, whether it's a Jungian collective unconscious or what you hear about as a corporate culture. Now, corporate cultures exist everywhere, not just in businesses. Corporate cultures exist across any kind of social gathering, whether it's your PTA, your Boy Scouts, uh, you know, your, your Society for Creative Anachronism, reenactment groups, okay? Every group has its corporate culture. We have to wrap our heads around that and accept that. Now, the difference is how much of that group effect, a group think, is a we. I just got done reading this morning a nine-page description of an esoteric order that was sent to me, and it's a an order that's a schi- not really schismatic. That would be an improper term, but they had problems, and there was an amicable divorce with some of the people. Okay, and this is the new order, and it's all connected, all going back to the Golden Dawn and all that, and SRI and those things. And in the first paragraphs, the first two paragraphs, there are a lot of we statements, and that's typical of a social control mechanism, what we believe, what we do, what we think, what we feel. Now, in the mundane sense, and I don't believe in that idea of the mundane spiritual, by the way. There's a continuum. And and on a day-to-day basis, we think only of our very physical kind of encounters because that's what we're mostly concerned with. We don't think about what a egregore is in the classical sense. And that is where we as individuals, as part of a group on this physical world, engage in practices, whether they be ritualistic, which they often are, meditative, or whatever. And that then becomes a conduit or channel into the invisible, into the psychic, the so-called astral, if you will, where at the other end of that funnel is one or more, or mostly one, but along the way others, spiritual entities, which may be thinking of us to some degree benevolently or in our best interest or not. And these spiritual entities can be anything from what we think of as gods or goddesses or deities or angels or demons all the way to um, 
human beings who have been deified in some kind of apotheosis, you know, elevated to some kind of divine status, either through culture and tradition, like you see George Washington on the, I think it's the rotunda of the, uh, uh, of, uh, the house where he's, you know, almost elevated this divine status or through actual, uh, ritual work where the individual or the sacrifice being is, of course, turned into some kind of, or believed to be, I should say, some kind of conduit to uh, energies on the other side. These are everywhere, and you are always encountering them. You must accept that in order to make sense of this. And then you'll begin to understand how the more basic things that we think of as marketing, public relations, media, why this matters from it, particularly when looking at it from an esoteric or occult perspective. When I was reading your book, um, I was reminded from time to time of various concepts that I'd read about in the past that appeared superficially at least to have some kind of overlap or commonality. I'm thinking of um, the, the concept of thought forms, tulpas, golems, uh, the concept of uh, Watiko, you know, as like uh, the reality of, of, of evil. And all these things that people dismiss very readily, uh, particularly today when we're living with the, in the West, certainly at least with this very materialistic worldview, matter is all that matters. But with regard to um, other, you know, a spiritual dimension or dimensions, I always felt that from the material to non-material was some kind of continuum and there wasn't some kind of cutoff point. I don't know if that makes sense, that uh, material can influence the non-material and vice versa. But there are different forms. So something can be, can move from one to the other. It's not, it's like a, it's like a spectrum. It's not black and white. You know, it goes, it's like a rainbow sort of spectrum. You think of light. Well, it's, it's important because the notion is that which is above comes from that which is below. And that which is below comes from that which is above to accomplish the work of the one thing. As we see in the, you know, so-called Emerald Tablet. And we also see in uh, the gospel, uh, in the book of uh, Matthew, Jesus saying, you know, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I'll give you the, uh, the keys uh, to which, uh, you know, the, the forces of hell shall not, uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which the forces of hell shall not uh, you know, make any headway. And, and then it says, uh, that which you uh, bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Uh, and that which you bound in heaven should be bound on earth. And this is interesting because it's that notion of, well, how, how is it that, you know, I bind something here and it affects the other? And this has to do with ritualistic work. And this has to do with the continuum of things. There's a continuity and a continuum. Uh, contemporary esotericism is, uh, for the most part, woefully inadequate to the task which it has assigned itself or believes itself to have, which is the... Uh, providing the tools and the mechanisms for the uh, awakening of the individual. Uh, this is in part mostly because of the cycle which we're in. You know, if we look at things astrologically or, or in the broader cycle sense. Uh, but, you know, your, your statement about the West being particularly materialistic is only partially true. Uh, you know, and in fact, what you have going on across different areas of the, the West is battles between egregores. You know, whether it's the battle of individualism versus collectivism, uh, whether it's the battle of, because collectivism, you know, is, is an egregore. So whether you're talking about 
uh, the, the idea of the nation state as an individual versus the total open border concept, that's still an egregore. And, and it still is not, it's still a lie too, because that open border concept still has a border to it. If it doesn't, everything falls into chaos, which is what you're experiencing in Europe now is this reality that when you take the liminal or take away boundaries, which have always been an important part of particularly European magic, uh, things fall into chaos because there's no, there's no place for anything to rest. I read uh, many years ago the granddaddy of uh, self-help books, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And uh, it was it was an edition that had it said on the cover, now fully restored. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what they took out, you know. And then I read somewhere else that the, how can I put it, that the esoteric element of his book had been redacted at some point over the decades and then brought back in again. And I realized that was a very important part of the book. And the more I read about work like his and the sort of popular um, fad that we've had in recent decades, you know, of manifesting, improving your life through, improving your thoughts and what have you, I began to see a connection between just what you're talking about is that everything real begins with a thought and that thoughts are things and it's energy and the, the, this thought energy goes somewhere and it can create and destroy. Uh, there's a lot of... A lot of denial, I think, about that. That I think people are very willing to accept something that that that, that might uh, pull a self-help book off the the bookshelf in the mind, body, and spirit, or whatever the new age section. And think, oh well, if I have um, if I have dream boards and and put post-it notes on my fridge and and think positively about this, you know, change can come into my life. But they don't consider, for example, what the mechanics of that might be. And I spent a long, long time considering that. So basically where I'm going with this is they're very willing to, some people are willing to accept that without thinking about what the mechanics could be, but unwilling to think that prior to that or post all of that, that everything else they might be thinking and be part of could somehow have um, latent energy that would, um, you know, would have agency in the world. Well, you have two factors at work here. Well, three, actually. One is... And the most important is the individual. Everything begins and ends with a thought. Uh, none of your thoughts are purely physical because the thoughts don't begin in the physical realm. They may manifest in and through the brain and then through the body and lead us to action. But we don't even know how a thought actually affects the nervous system, making us move our, our bodies. So that's important, too. Right now I'm speaking to you, but I can't honestly sit here and tell you what I'm going to say next. I can't say that I know exactly where my thoughts come from. I don't pretend to. I know that I have had a lot of experience in public speaking and in organizing my thoughts and and doing these kinds of interviews, but to sit here and actually pretend to you that I have an idea as to where my next words are going to come from and that I'm not going to break out in a, uh, an example of Tourette's syndrome is something that that would be a lie. I'm just confident it won't happen and that everything is going to go well because of past experience. So the question is, where am I, really? That is... Mark Stavish. Where, what are his thoughts that he is now communicating to you? So this whole notion of thought is quite mysterious, but it is also very real. And I think we need to focus on those concrete aspects of thoughts. Each of us are magi of a sort. We are Elohim, that is creating principles in the cosmos, in our little cosmos. And we are constantly doing that. The problem is we're constantly con uh, creating things which are inconsistent. Now, in NLP, they refer to a thing known as congruity, being congruent in your thoughts, in your 
uh, speech and in your actions. Well, this is nothing new because in the uh, Christian scriptures, you you know, for those of you who are Catholic, you know, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, how does one sin? One sins in thought, word, and deed. And if you trace that back, it goes to the uh, Jewish scriptures. And where does it come from? Ah, well, ah, it comes from the Babylonian captivity. And you see it there in those scriptures of that period. Thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. So we have thoughts, but they have to match our words, which is the true power of magic. That is the true source of the so-called Kundalini, uh, you know, anyone who studied the Tantras. And then, of course, there is the action that follows. All these things must be congruent and supportive with one another. And it's not enough that you simply do that during some ritual. You have to carry that across your life. You know, as I tell my son, who's uh, in his first year, freshman in college, and, you know, he's, he wants to do all sorts of stuff and not always focus on school, I said, you have to ask yourself a very simple question. What is my vision or my goal in life? What is it I want to achieve? Is what I'm doing now going to help me achieve that? And if not, don't do it. But if you do, accept responsibility for it. Now, that's what occultism and esotericism and spiritual awakening is all about. Being congruent and taking responsibility for our lives. It's not about turning it into some kind of uh, political action committee or social justice or uh, some kind of collectivist reform notion. It's not about that at all. And that's what it's degenerated into. Uh, as collectivism has insinuated its way very strongly and heavily into modern spirituality in, in all its forces and all of its expressions. Now, I have to make sure that I'm consistent. So let's say I'm consistent and I am able to bring my thoughts to realization through my actions. I don't just, you know, sit on my Muladhara chakra and expect things to fall from the sky. Because if I was really good, they could, but I'm probably not that good. So I actually have to put some extra effort into it. Okay. So, now we do that. Then you have to be notice that it's not just as, you know, Alexander David Neal is told, now you may not believe in tigers, but it doesn't mean they're not out there. So it's not just the tigers you create that you have to be aware of, but the tigers of others. So we have to realize that we have actions too, and other people have agendas too. Are our thought forms, is our will, is our desire, strong enough, focused enough, dedicated enough, where essentially we win. And I have to put it in that combative mode, but life is combative. We, we've ignored that for the longest time in the West, and now it's coming home to haunt us. So, you know, there, there is a struggle there that you have to, you know, we say the kingdom of heaven is taken by storm. You know, there's no, enlightenment is not for the lazy man. I forget who said it, but, you know, neither God nor the devil respects the lazy man. So that's the, the part two. There's first you being congruent enough to get something done, which most people aren't, or at least not often enough. So they work against themselves. Then there's the other ideas by others, which you must encounter and engage. And fortunately, most of them will disappear because they don't have much strength. But then there's the agenda of invisible beings which is often ignored. And that's where we begin to talk about egregores and what are those invisible beings and how do they manifest their agendas. Yes, well, we'll get more uh, meaningfully into that in a few moments. Uh, just one little thing I mentioned. Uh, you mentioned NLP 
a couple of minutes ago, just for any listeners who don't know, that's neuro-linguistic programming. And yeah, what you've just been saying about the agendas of others reminds me of something my grandfather said when I was learning to drive. Always remember, you can drive as carefully as you like or as you can, but that won't stop somebody else crashing into you. Who knows what they're doing or where they learn to drive, you know, because there's other cars on the road, not just you. I I tell my kids that all the time when we're in the car. I I, I tell them why I do what I do, because they're still learning. I say, look, you know, it's not just me. It's all these other vehicles moving around it anywhere from 45 to 70 miles an hour. We had a guy blow through a red light. Now, of course, it was the timing was there wasn't really a threat to anyone, but it's illegal, you know, and he could have, he had time to stop and chose not to. So he went through a red light. And I just pointed that out to my son. You see that now? That guy went through a red light. I said, you have to be aware of that. You can't just, you know, jackrabbit it out of the corner because you've got the green. And that kind of awareness, while we think of it as fairly uh, either commonplace or maybe not even meaningful at times, is what can save your life. But it's a kind of awareness that you have to bring to everything you do, uh, particularly esoteric practices, where if you're doing them properly, everything you do is amplified. It should be. If it, because you're getting rid of the incongruities. You're getting rid of the things which clog it up. A couple of thoughts about thoughts. I mean, you, you talked a moment ago about where your thoughts come from. And I certainly have, we all do, but I certainly have thoughts where I'm struck by where, what the hell was that? You know, I didn't consciously decide to have that thought. My mind, I didn't direct my mind to that place, but it's just suddenly there it is in my, in my mind is a thought. Sometimes not a good thought or not one that I want. It's like, whoa, what, what was that? You know, where, where do those come from? So yeah, that is an important question. But as far as people's focus or lack of it, uh, they have the term scatterbrain, you know, for someone who like, just can't, mm-hmm. can't get, can't get things done, can't get organized, just not finishing things. Many and if not most people are actually like this. You know, they may outwardly have their life somewhat together and be somewhat successful, but most people, most people's thoughts are not organized, focused, or consistent. And a, a lot of times you're asking, you're saying about posing the question to your son about what he wants to do. And I think a lot of people don't even know what they want, never mind how they might move towards that goal. And if we factor in what we've been saying about thoughts becoming things, that they're powerful, whether you focus them or not, they're powerful, then you begin to understand, um, it begins to make sense of a lot of what we see around us. Uh, in the world, you know, in our day-to-day interactions with people and with organizations, what have you? Well, if you want to, you know, see an example of uh, good magic, you have to see an example of good accomplishment. Now, magic, by the way, is about powers, so it's about accomplishment. Um, You know, whereas mysticism is about one's inner awareness, inner awakening, and the two are not uh, separate, but traditionally we've often treated them increasingly as separate aspects in in Western spirituality. But even within the the modern occult movement, they tend to treat them as separate. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just an error. Again, any, uh, too, too many of those separations are errors. Uh, there has to be a healthy boundaries, permeable boundaries where, you know, where things are distinct and yet where they overlap, particularly within our own, our, our own lives. But if you want to look at a a good magician, you know, someone who's really able to focus and stay on target and get something done, 
uh, you need look no further than, you know, those terribly corrupt politicians that you're often criticizing. If you don't want to look at them, then look at, uh, you know, some sports hero, you know, particularly someone who actually has done something modestly heroic, like, you know, Muhammad Ali. I don't particularly like boxing, but I'm, I'm simply amazed at the amount of mental discipline that is required of someone to become a champion in that sport. Now, we don't think of that as a mental discipline, because, but the body doesn't move on its own. The body doesn't train on its own. There are psychological aspects about boxers that most people will never find out about because they haven't studied how they train. And uh, I think it was, uh, you know, in, in the great, the great uh, bout, I think it was between him and, and Joe Frazier, I think it's called Rumble in the Jungle. It took place in Africa, and it's a great documentary to watch. Uh, they would he would walk by the training room, and and the doors were always open so that he could see you know they could see each other, but he wouldn't look in. He never looked at his opponent. Constantly stayed focused. You know those little uh, ditties that he would say about "I am the greatest." I mean, this was part of his mental focus, part of his character development, part of his training. So. We think of magic in, in, in terribly uh, infantile terms. Uh, in, that is around always having to do these rituals and lines on the floor. Yes, that's an important and critical part. I'm, I'm not saying it isn't. It is. But on a day-to-day -day basis in the world of nature, of natural magic, those things aren't happening. It's about the direction of inner powers, which are deep and profound, and, re and act regardless of whether we pay attention to them or not. And that's what egregores is about. Your your creation, your power to create is constantly on and it acts according to the direction and the focus you give it. Yeah, and if, if any listeners are saying, oh, hang on, they, they've been talking about magic here. Uh, when did we get on to that? Magic is, I often, people ask me about it, I'll often say it's focused will, uh, intent, action towards some outcome that's all it really is as you say it's thought about in terribly infantile terms but if you put it in that context then perhaps people can begin to get this i keep stressing the importance of what you think and how that synchronizes or otherwise with what you say and what you do and that's what magic really is a channeled focused form of that sometimes backed up with something like ceremony well the ceremony is designed to give you congruity mm-hmm now, again, many people say, oh, well, he just means psychological. Yes, I mean psychological. Because psychological is the foundation of it. You know, psyche is soul, knowledge of the soul. This is the foundation of it. It's not the end of it, though. What we're saying is that when you look at this across the spectrum, our actions don't often just limit themselves to our own brain pan, okay, or to the area around us, but if really well-structured, impact on a metaphysical level and have a relationship with, again, what is the notion of this, but invisible beings either consciously through choice, whether it's called a pact or a dedication or a devotion, such as deities and saints or gods, or simply accidentally. Uh, this is just um, a side point that I wanted to put to you because I wanted to, again, this came up when I was reading your book and I wanted to ask you about it. I've always had an, an aversion to collectives, crowds, I remember the first day I was taken to school and it was like, 
you must go and stay with this group of strangers and engage in activities you don't want to engage in. And I, I can, I'm very sensitive to group energy, if you see what I mean. You know, the, they talk about the wisdom of crowds. There's all, also the insanity of crowds. So, and that's something I felt strongly all my life. And it doesn't mean I'd never taken part in any collective activities or groups or anything like that, but there's, I'm very, very wary of it. And when in a public space, when something begins to coalesce energetically in terms of a group of people, I'm very aware of it. I can, I can feel a group of, particularly if it's negative energy, I can feel them approaching. I, I, I don't know, something in, something in the air changes. So when people talk about collective action, in this day and age, quite often they're talking about protest movements and stuff. I've always been very skeptical and wary about that. Well, you know, we, we have to deal with other people. That's just the reality of life. So we have to learn to deal with other people. The question is, you know, are we dealing with people, individuals, or are we dealing with groups? Uh, one of the most interesting things we see today, and even my children notice it, I mean, it's, it's that blatant, is this idea of collective identification. You know, and there's a you know, and, uh, and I am that. Me too. And that's, I'm not particularly in the Me Too movement, but Me Too is just applicable to almost anything. Oh, Me Too, Me Too. I want to be part of that. I want to join in. I want to be part of that. Oh, I'm part of that. That, that applies to me. And, you know, people lose their individuality and people begin to be treated not as individuals. Uh, you know, and it's as, as one person said to me, it was also in an article and a couple people said to me, you know, it's the idea that people are identifying with a group for their identity and then in turn are treated as that. You know, it's like, is the, is this a black man or a man who happens to be black? And I jokingly said, you know, it's interesting. Back in the day, you know, that saying, oh, and my black friends was kind of a joke as a form of subtle racism or, or not necessarily racism, but kind of ignorance about things. I was almost a ver, er, that was an early virtue signaling that was, you know, back when uh, it was considered virtuous. But what is it now? There's so much confusion around it. Because on the one hand, it's don't identify by race, yet identify yourself with race. I just throw that as an example. You can pick anything you want. You know, pick it. Find it in your own lives. What is it that you really identify with? And then how do then people begin to identify you? And then how is there an inconsistency in neuroses created around it? It was okay for one, but not for the other. So now we're looking at this morally as a psychosocial phenomenon now. But on an occult phenomenon, there are entities that feed off that energy. What is that energy? It's emotions. They feed off that neurotic emotion. Just as there are entities that feed off positive emotion of love and happiness and joy. But we tend not to see those as much because they're more harmonious. So if you avoid a group, that's wonderful because if the group is going, you know, there's a certain area of psychic contagion there. You know, people act differently in groups. And, uh, you know, when you go to places, you know, there are psychic energies or entities that are parasitical. And it doesn't just have to be some protest movement in the street. It can be, like you said, a, a soccer game, football game, a uh, strip club. How about a really bad neighborhood? Hmm. Or how about a really good neighborhood? 
how do people change when they're suddenly put in a museum and they get to see nice art and hear good music and, and see pretty things? And that doesn't happen all the time. People don't just change instantly. But there's areas there where people can learn because of the inner outer effect. Remember, the inner outer, people can change very much according to the stimuli that they're given. That stimuli is not just limited. It's a continuum. Yes, and uh, you mentioned actually in part of our communication before we actually had this talk today that this isn't all inherently negative. Uh, there can be positive dimensions to this, but it's just being aware of it. it. And it's just, I think, that a lot of what we're discussing, the dimensions of the phenomenon, are negative because that appears to be predominant in the world at the moment. Well, it's predominant because it's encouraged. It's encouraged by mm. people and it's cre encouraged by their psychic overlords. You have a very real battle of egregores going on in your country and across the world. You know, and this is seen primarily in the form of, you know, the, the struggle between cultures and what does culture mean? Yeah, well, let's look at some dimensions of the, of the egregore phenomenon then. One of the first ones that people might be thinking of themselves when they've been listening to us speak would perhaps be that of uh, a religion in particular. You think of the egregores of the even the major Abrahamic religions in the world. These are incredibly powerful. Uh, we talk about, or you speak about in the book, how a collective can create uh, an egregore, which may or may not become independent in due course. But they, of course, then can be affected by it. It feeds back. Hence, be careful what it is that you create. But certainly in the realms of religion and spirituality, that's one of the main arenas, I think, where people with their day-to-day -day lives will come across this. Well, that's true. The reason the book is written is to really focus on those. Uh, religion and politics, or spirituality and politics, are both the philosophical expressions of Jupiter. And uh, that's where you see the notion of egregores most powerfully in day-to-day -day experience, and where it's also the most divisive. Uh, because just the nature of duality, these, these energies are both positive and negative in their aspects. It's unavoidable. That's why any any notion of utopianism or perfection is always inherently evil. Uh, you know, national socialism was a utopian dream. Uh, yet, I don't know how many people ended up dead by it, at least. Uh, and then communism, which, for some reason, that bad boy just won't die. I mean, that just keeps being reborn in different forms. Uh, you know, even more per people were murdered under it. Uh, but somehow our, our modern esotericism and spiritual movements like to give it a pass because of the so-called utopian vision of, uh, you know, idealism and, and that, that is associated with it. And well, it's, so it's everybody being equal, isn't it? The idea that um, a more equal world would be happier than well, a more unequal world. And that if you, well, if I have the same as you and you don't have anything I don't have, et cetera, that we'll all be able to get along better. Yeah. Well, that's just a lie because it's never existed. And, and the world isn't equal and the universe isn't equal. I mean, this is a false idea. It's a false philosophy that only ends in death. And, and the reason is because the universe is not concerned with equality. It has, it's not equal. And spirituality and initiation has nothing to do with equality. Uh, you can't get it collectively. Uh, you can't vote for it. It can't be given to you. It's earned as an individual through your own efforts. And in fact, the notion of salvation, uh, uh, is interesting. That can be kind of a grace. We can help you. We can remove certain errors or stains or sins or sicknesses, if you will, salve. But, uh, that just means you're now responsible for what goes on from there. The whole notion of actual immortality in the, in, in the classical text is one that is self-created. And uh, 
you know, Gurdjieff was quite adamant about that, and of course he was getting it from the, the ancients, the body of light or the rainbow body or the alchemical stone. This is forged by the individual in and through and of themselves. So uh, the, the universe is only concerned with the hierarchy of power. And that's missed. Uh, that's just the reality of it. Now, we can try and humanize it in the sense that it matches our, our notions of values and rights and wrong, but at the end of the day, the universe is indifferent to our, our woefully uh, inadequate human notion. Yeah, that's a very unfashionable point of view, of course, at the minute, isn't it? But uh, that doesn't change. But that's the egg. That's yeah, the yeah. battle of the egregores. Yeah. There, there is going to be a bloody battle in Europe for its survival. This is unavoidable at point. And, it, and it's because of the unwillingness to accept the reality of nature. Nature always is correct. And this is what contemporary politicians know inside and act accordingly while, you know, being deceptive on the outside. But occultists who should know better have fallen into this as well. They have been seduced by the appeal of ease. You also mentioned a moment ago, I think this is important, the utopian thinking that has gone on at various times in human history. And I think it's interesting and rather predictable that when we've gone to touch upon some of the big problems that we're facing in the world, uh, but many of the proposed solutions are decidedly utopian in nature. I get, for example, the in the realm of uh, energy and the environment, for example, you have things like the zeitgeist movement uh, fix everything in one go. Despite lessons from history or the, the lack of them, I suppose these ideas, like communism, they, they, they do just keep coming up. Well, let's 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 go to that bad boy, the Venus movement zeitgeist, which I remember years ago. You know, when I was teaching, uh, I was teaching a lot of blue collar guys. They were called non traditional students. They had gone back to school. That is after twenty. Many of them were in their mid twenties, or which some of them were. You know, it's either go to school or go to the army, or some of them were actually returning from tours overseas. And these blue-collar kids were smart enough to see the crap that the Zeitgeist movement was when they would watch it. They could see the nonsense in it. It's, you know, it, it's the uh, the foolish intellectual class, the chattering class that is always the first to die, uh, that can't see it. Now, that's an important point, because the, the utopian vision outlined in those four hours, that's a lot of money. I mean, I mean, it's old now, but it's still on Netflix and other places you can watch it. That's a lot of money to produce that. There, there's a who does that serve to spend that kind of money to make those kinds of films? And there's a, a massive amount of inaccuracy and deception in those. They're simply lies. You know, when it comes to a lot of the comparisons of religion and, and, and statements that are drawn out, but they're convenient. They're happy. They they're very new agey, and they make people think they know something that they really don't. And it's stated very clearly that the world will be run by an overclass and nobody will have to worry about anything. They say that right in the beginning, I think. And yet, that's the fantasy, you know, this dystopian, utopian fantasy that is constantly rammed down our throats by Netflix. I mean, look at what's on there and the rest of the media. This is a social control mechanism to create these thoughts and sustain these thoughts to make this happen. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but if you understand occultism, there should be this should not be a surprise. It's freedom from 
decisions, isn't it? That some people want freedom from responsibility. And I see this every day. People are desperate to be led, desperate to be told what to do, desperate to, I mean, maybe they can decide what to have for lunch, but sometimes you're not so sure. They're still looking for suggestions there. So this is freedom from decisions and responsibility is what can be the key to success, albeit temporary for some of these sort of movements. Well, that's it. That's exactly it. I mean, everyone, you know, saw the movie The Avengers. And in there, the first one, Loki's there saying, you know, your true place is on your knees. That is where you like it. And that's true. People like to be led. They like to pretend. What they want is they want the adventure of the amusement park where they get the rush, but there's no real danger. There's no real risk. Hmm. A life is filled with danger and risk. And, you know, there's this middle ground that we can live in, you know, but with balance. You have to constantly work to achieve that. That many of us have been fortunate enough to experience, where we don't have the extremes of having experienced, uh, you know, the communist bloc or, or the Chinese invasion of, you know, whatever, Tibet, or these other horrible experiences that have gone on, or these different, you know, banana republics set up across Central and South America or the Caribbean. You know, there's a lot of us who have not experienced that, fortunately. But that means we have a responsibility to understand some hows and whys and to make best use of our opportunity now, not only for our awakening, but for others as well, to help them as best we can, we can't do it for them, but we can help. Because these opportunities don't last forever. There's cycles that work. They come and they go. Yes. Yeah, and if you want freedom from decisions and responsibility, by all means, you know, get in line. There's a lot of people there. But just be aware then that decisions will be taken by someone or something else. Ditto hey, r- responsibility. Go to North Korea. Go join a prison or a gang. Go to prison. That's one of the problems with recidivism is young men who have spent their entire lives in and out of these systems simply can't handle responsibility. They don't know what to do, whereas they'll say, you know, at least in jail, that everything was clear. They knew the pecking order. They knew the routine. Everything was done. In some ways, but differently, the same as with a lot of institutional settings. People like these big institutional settings because it frees them from actual responsibility. And yes. that's okay as long as you know it. Yeah, you know, I think we've got, uh, now I'm not a parent, but I've got friends who are, and they've got, uh, most of them have got kids actually around about the, the age that, that you mentioned of your son starting in college. And through that, I sort of second and third hand get exposed to what a lot of uh, older teenagers and, and young adults are thinking, experiencing. I read a lot about it. I hear a lot about it in the media. I pay attention to it, despite, as I say, not being a parent. And we seem to have a tremendous wave of younger people coming through now, another generation who seem very unfocused and unable, unwilling to take responsibility. Everything from those young Japanese men who are living with their parents into their 30s and just don't go out anymore. Uh, they don't have jobs. They don't have relationships. And there's no end in sight. Through, and there's the same, that same basic phenomenon manifests in, in the US and right across Europe and most developed nations as well. So I'm, it's going to be very interesting if I can use that word to see how that trend develops over the, the, the next decade or so. Well, well, to answer your question, this notion of not having responsibility is cultivated. 
You know, it's all it's cultivated the notion that the state will take care of you. You know, we've gone beyond having a state or a social welfare system that is, you know, really trying to help people get out of the bottom, which of course is having worked in the system, I can tell you is a is mixed bag at best because people also have to want to. And I've seen it where they just don't want to. A lot of them don't want to. And now to a system that you have to have because uh, you've managed to export, you know, so many jobs elsewhere or simply destroy them completely with, with uh, uh, robotics or mechanizations of some kind. And, you know, this isn't the same as the early industrial revolution. You know, we're talking, oh, what's the recent number? Is it how many, six billion or six and a half billion people? You know, it's... Uh, I was heading for seven. Yeah, the numbers are staggering, right? I, I mean, I I just forget because I hear it so often and it's like, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter at this point. And that's the point. We're talking about billions. And this is where, you know, the individual individuality is lost. Now, that also individuality becomes a tool of, of manipulation as well. You know, and that's where you see always this notion of individuality as the mechanism of, of manipulation, as a mechanism of creation of relationship. People relate to individuals, so you have to create your straw man or you have to create your ideal through media and politics. We manipulate that in order to get people then to move beyond that and identify with a mass, a collective. It's very simple and straightforward. And, you know, as Stalin said, one is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Hmm. I mean, that's the great irony of how we how these things work. So as we move towards this notion of tech, uh, technology, you know, where do we fit into this? And this is part of the, the egregores as well that would create the notion of uh, mechanical uh, or, you know, technological utopias. And people listening may say, what does this have to do with esotericism? Well, the fact is everything. You know, we've really, we've really gotten this terrible notion that occultism has to do with uh, very specific symbols and very specific books and belonging to very specific orders and invoking very specific deities and beings or what have you. And that's part of it, but that's not how it works in the real world. Once you move that lodge room, once you remove from that group or that ritual, then things happen in a whole different fashion. And that's what we're talking about in the rest of the cosmos, where these things move and have their their existence. Uh, so as part of the having people wanting to surrender their responsibility is a fact of consequences. The reason you have so many stupid ideas going on out there is because people are sheltered from the consequences. And yet when that fat moves away, then people experience the real karma, the real cause and effect of what's going on. Well, we touched upon egregores and politics and nation states and what have you. And we'll return to that just before we finish up. But other areas where people will be coming up against this in everyday life are in, we've already alluded to this, uh, media, advertising and all the propaganda that goes with that, where, you know, what we wear, what we eat, what we drink, what we watch, what we believe, what we think. And of course, pop culture, which is wrapped up in that as well. Music, movies, TV, celebrities. These are all, and a lot has been written and said about the effects of all this on our lives, but I think that put in the context that you do in the book, it takes on a whole other level of meaning. Well, very much because, you know, why is it that certain celebrities are deified? I mean, uh, you go to any American college campus in the fall when 
uh, dorms are opening up and stuff is being bought and sold on campus. And you'll see vendors there with selling posters and pictures of Marilyn Monroe and, you know, Bob Marley and <laughs> you read my mind. I was just, you, as soon as you said Marilyn Monroe, I said, oh, Bob Marley, Che Guevara, and you just said it. <laughs> che Guevara was a murderer. Mm. He, was a, he was a horrible human being. And there you have it on T-shirts. Okay? Marilyn Monroe, the perfect embodiment of Venus, you know. And there you have it. These people, I mean, they've been dead for 50 years, you know, and, and there, there it is. Uh, being kept alive. And you see the same thing with the, the ideas of, you know, Kennedy and that whole thing. But notice there's a bias there. Notice the bias in terms of where it is. Mm. Who's being pushed and promoted. That said, this deification is part of that distraction. You know, to, to control large groups of people, you don't need to control everyone. You just need to get them to control themselves, which is why political correctness is such an insidious egregore. Because it creates neuroses through self-censorship and deception. So it's an evil. Because it makes it create sickness. All, of course, under the guise of, of equity, justice, and, and all these other things. But it's not. All you have to do is get people to control themselves. And how do you do that? You keep hammering home a message. Well, how do you do that? You have to have access to the people who control the message. Look, I've worked in media. I've worked with stuff. I was just even glancing. Go online. Go on and and glance at the requirements for news reporters. I was shocked. I saw a major news station. I was looking for reporters for New York, and the minimum requirement was uh, high school diploma, college preferred. Oh, and, and this is going to be the person, and the description was to identify, edit, and produce stories. Let that sink in. I have a degree in communications. I've taught in communications, and I like it, but the best and the brightest do not go into media. No. It just doesn't happen. No, I, I almost took a journalism course uh, many years ago and uh, I went along. They, they had a, you applied and then they narrowed it down to a smaller group. And then they had a, an open day where you went along and you took part in group activities and various simulations. And from that, they then chose the people who would go on the course because there were less than, I think there was nine places on the course. And there was about 20 of us that made it through to this open day. And I completed the whole day, but I didn't, bother with it at all after that because I realized that at best I'd be starting doing cat up a tree stories as we call them here you know local news it's just yeah, it's sure. totally meaningless and that any avenue I would be very very fortunate um, if I was ever able to really express what I felt or thought about you know subjects of my choosing that that, that was there was almost no chance of that ever happening and it was really just about packaging stuff and taking press releases and changing a couple of words and release, putting them out there again, but with the, the stamp of approval of the media. Um, so I, I dropped that like a hot potato. It didn't stop me doing journalism, but I just did, I just did it anyway. You know, that's what I quite often say to people, people, oh, I want to be a musician. I want to be a writer. Okay. Well, then write some music and you know, write, write a book, whatever. Just do it. You know, you don't have to wait for orders from headquarters. No, you don't. Well, going back to how media's done, I mean, just go online and look at those, uh, some of those studies on, you know, how the same press release is read, you know, almost word for word. And, uh, that's increasingly so. I mean, you said that you want to, you know, you wouldn't get a chance to say what you feel. And frankly, I don't care how you feel about a topic. I want to know what you know. And I, I'm not being harsh there. I'm just saying that, what do you know? And that's what reporters are supposed to talk about. What do you know? And, and, and not, and then not so much interpret all the time, but tell us some facts. And they've moved away from that. 
because it's the brutal battle for celebrity. And Jacques Vallée, you know, he talked about that quite well in you know, his, his writings about UFOs and, and the studies of that in the paranormal and, and as, a, as an author and someone who writes particularly in the, in the narrow genre of esotericism. You know, we're constantly engaged in this battle for celebrity status. Constantly. It's, it's a constant, you know, to, to get your name out there, your face out there, so people read your books. And it's not just in marketing. It's just so that they actually read them because anything you've said that's of value doesn't matter if it's not read. So, you know, we, I spent more time doing radio shows and blogs like this in the last two months than I've done in the last probably three years. Because this book has taken off and now is the time to move with it. And we've done a lot of big national shows too. Uh, we had an interview with Russian television, America, and I'm going to do Gaia television in October. But why? Let's get back to the why. It's the brutal battle for celebrity so that someone will actually listen to what you've written and read it and maybe it'll sink in. And that hasn't changed. You see that across the, the, the centuries, across the millennia, and particularly say like in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, in the celebrity status was very important. It still is, but cause it's all marketing. No matter when and where, it's always marketing. But now it's amplified. It's on steroids because the what is constantly seeking to grab the attention of people, whether it's through social media or through uh, selected media, such as Netflix, okay, um, you can just create an echo chamber for yourself where you never have to be exposed to anything. And I want to give you an example of this. One of my jobs early out of college was to help look for sales leads. And one of the ways we did that was I would sit in the morning with a stack of newspapers and I would go through them looking for articles that would be of use to the sales department. Okay. Now, when you do that, as you're turning pages of physical papers, your eyes through the peripheral vision will always catch another article that you normally wouldn't see. There were things that I normally, I would not have read. I would not have sought them out, but because they're in the context of what I am looking for, I catch it and I read it. That doesn't happen when you have media on demand because the demand reinforces the pre, the, the prejudices and predisposed dispositions in the echo chamber of the individual setting the limits of what they're after. Do you understand? That is one of the greatest problems that we are experiencing in terms of media. Well, think about that. What that means is the ability for people to think and the willingness to think are go dramatically down. So the egregores that feed off human stupidity are amplified, but those egregores are also invisible beings that have no care for you or concern for you. You're just food. We're food for the gods. Mark, as we're sort of running out of time for today, there's a whole raft of things that we could have done an entire show on, and there's things we haven't got to, you know, really from sports through to social media. And indeed, a question that you've just prompted there in some people's minds may be, well, in what sense are these entities quote-unquote real? If they can be said to exist, then when... Or how or what does that look like? Again, that's probably such something we don't really have time to get into. I want to bring the talk round to, as we do move to a close, where we are right now in terms of world events. 
And just uh, a question I do want to ask, and this seems like the only time that I really can insert it in, uh, it's about 9-11 and the relevance of that event and everything that followed directly or indirectly from that in terms of the content of your new book. Now, for me, subsequently looking back, I feel fortunate in a way to have lived in a time on Earth when something like that happened because my mind opened tremendously. My consciousness expanded in the wake of that event. It's been like climbing out of a hole in the ground into daylight after that event. Well, three things, uh, very quickly. One is uh, I knew people who were there and were not there, unfortunately survived and were involved in disaster recovery. So, um, you know, it's, it's personal to me. I have a small vial of actual ash from the site, you know, that I have was given to me. I think 9-11 was really this pivotal point because it also was the movement into the surveillance state. And I say state as a singular because increasingly we saw uh, sharing of information between uh, a variety of these surveillance mechanisms. And, uh, I mean, you have all these security cameras in London, but it doesn't keep you safe. It just keeps you under thumb. That's all it's meant to do. And and even more so, I mean, for what reason? This is restriction. People talk about the age of Aquarius is openness. They say, no, it's Saturn. It's restriction. So there's, there's a lot of this misconception. But, you know, I remember, uh, even now, you see now, everything is recorded. They're, they're going after these guys for stuff they did in high school or said or did something on social media coming back to haunt them as if it mattered. The kids, they, stu- they say stupid things, they do stupid things. But you see, there's all restriction. It's all about restriction, all Saturnian restriction. That's what this is all about. And that's about control and singularity, too. It's about a singularity of control. Not just the notion of mechanized singularity or of human cyborg uh, kind of uh, visions, but again, always conformity, conformity, conformity. So that that's part of it. And, uh, you know, then the other part of it is, you know, that morning, it was a Tuesday morning. And I remember because I woke up and the sun was up and I uh, I wrote down the dream that I had just before waking. And it was kind of like one of those funny cartoons I remember as a kid, almost like stuff was cut out rather than uh, actual lot of drawing. And there was a lion that burst out of the basement of the building and it jumped up to about two thirds of the way up to this tall cylindrical building. And everything was red, red and fire everywhere. And I woke up and I wrote it down. There's a few other details in there, but I wrote it down. And I wrote down, you know, Sechmet, the goddess of war. And of course, we're told that these guys on board were Egyptian. And when you look at the planes hitting, they hit about two thirds of the way up. And I don't say that easily or loosely because later that day, I remember exactly where I was when you know, news came over, but we were moving my office. I was moving from a small office to a much larger, nicer executive suite across the hall, which everyone wanted because it had its own bathroom, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when the boss came in and we all started watching TV to see what's going on. These forces at play are real and occultists need to recognize it and they need to disengage 
from political activity and politicizing of their actions and get back to the work of self-awareness and enlightenment. And from that, then they will be able to act in an enlightened way and say things in an enlightened way, in an aware way. That's what we mean by enlightened, aware, fully aware of consequences, cause and effect. That's what we're talking about when we say those words. That will have meaningful change or more lasting, not permanent, but more lasting change. But if they choose to go down the path which is dominating Western occultism now, they are nothing more than food for the clip-off, no matter how else they may want to cover it. They're just food for the demons and the gods and other beings that don't care about them. Now, they can change that, and everyone can change it by focusing on healthy things and good things and helpful things, but that involves know thyself and become self-aware. So a lot of people are really struggling to comprehend uh, events in the world at the minute. And, and I said at the top of the hour that if you take into consideration the concepts, the ideas, the information in your book, then some of these things will begin to make more sense. How would you present some of the main trends or the ones that you observe or concern you in the world through the lens of the work in your new book? How would you re reframe some of these events so that people might be able to grasp them more easily? Well, you have egregores, of course, are collective entities and nations have them and you can see them, but pseudo large groups. And of course, through the symbols of the egregores, you can get a sense of what their planetary energies are. What is, what are the energies that, that, that is working in and through them? So, when you look at, uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam, it's fundamentally a lunar current. Yeah, there's some Venusian aspect there, which is kind of a, an emotionalism, but it's basically a lunar religion from the occult perspective. So, you know, it's, it's time is waning. That's why you see such uh, massive expansion of it and attempt for control, because it's waning. But the question is, in its final death throes, what's going to happen is going to be pretty massive. Because the, the other religions, and of course that goes into the notion of the Kali Yuga. Most Tibetan converts in the West are fools. They don't understand that when the Dalai Lama is out there giving initiations in the Kalachakra Pantra to prepare them to be warriors in Shambhala. You know, that's both literal and figurative. I mean, they have an apocalyptic vision that involves, you know, the final battle between, uh, you know, what is Islam? They call it the barbarians, those who talk funny, but it's quite clear it's, it's Islam and, and, and Buddhism. Now, uh, that has its own implications that we can talk about at some other point, but the fact is, Westerners are terrified of talking about this and being censored for it, which should be simple, which enough, that, that should be enough to tell you who's in control, what egregore because is, is controlling your thoughts and feelings. The fact that you get a little nervous even when I say this to you. There's no reason to be nervous about it, but that's how inculcated and indoctrinated people can be. Uh, within the Catholic Church, we're seeing the, the collapse or restructuring of its egregore in many ways. Uh, of course, being in Pennsylvania and seeing where the first report came out, I went to see the list to see which priests on there I might have known. I mean, some of them, uh, the Monsignor, the bishops I've met or had, was in meetings with that point. So, you know, this is not, this is very close to me in these ways, people I know. 
on a very real level, not just this notion of occult lodges. Uh, on the other hand, we also have um, some other areas to, to be concerned with, and that is the notion of one world government and collectivism. It's so ironic. I mean, the prophecies and predictions of the fundamentalist Christians in the 80s and 90s are coming more accurately true than all those new age fantasies we heard about. So uh, anything that is restrictive in that way is something we need to pay attention to, not because restrictions are bad, but, you know, when you take a screw and you tighten it down, you either bring two pieces together, like wood, you know, on furniture, but if you keep tightening, eventually you break the wood. It is the proper use of force that we have to each learn. But that's the proper use of force in whatever we do. And that has to do with when to start and when to stop. And these egregores are restraining mechanisms, all of them. So just look at your lives and say, where is media dominating your thoughts? Where is entertainment just sapping your life force? Sitting here as I am in the, the north of uh, Great Britain, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about a comment that you made when we had a little pre-chat a couple of weeks ago. That is to say, I am currently residing in a key battleground state going forward. So perhaps you'd care to um, throw a bit of light on that before we uh, wrap it up. Egregores are connected to collective identity, subculture, and language. And while you don't want your culture and language to dominate you, they are your foundation for this life and this existence. You can't ignore them. You ignore them at your peril. And nature abhors a vacuum. If you want to destroy your language and culture and think that somehow none of that matters, well, then something's going to come in and fill that void. The problem with multiculturalism is that there's never been multiculturalism as we talk about it in the West. It doesn't exist. It never has. That's why it will always degenerate down to the lowest common denominator, which is consumerism. So when you then talk about consumerism and the problems there, and you say, well, where's the spirituality? What is the next lowest common denominator of spirituality? Lunar religion. So the phrase I'm quoting here from your book, uh, with regard to these entities and their action upon us, is without knowledge or consent. And I, as a closing thought, I'd simply re reiterate what I said earlier. And that is to say, if you're not creating your own life, if you're not controlling it, if you're not steering it, then someone else or something else is doing it for you. Of that, you can be sure. Exactly. That's it. That's all there is to it. Today, Mark, we've been talking about your latest book, Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny. That's widely available. Uh, people can find that in all their usual outlets, favourite bookshops, whatever. Um, just before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, perhaps your website, maybe something you're working on for the future, just anything else you'd like to put out there? You know, we've talked a lot about the negative aspects of egregores, but there are positive. You find positive groups, find positive friends, and be with them. Your mother was right, you become like the fruit. Be careful of the friends you pick because you become like them. That's just all there is to it. So there is a positive takeaway message from this, and you can't separate yourself out from a lot of these egregores that may no longer help you. They may have at one time, but they don't anymore. You can take the long road out. It's okay. It's good. Um, if they would like, people would like to read more, they can go to Institute for Hermetic Studies. 
uh, at hermeticinstitute.org. They can easily find it through a Google search on you know, myself or my name. They can subscribe to our free blog at uh, Box Hermes at WordPress. Again, if they send me an email uh, at info at hermeticinstitute.org, uh, uh, I'll gladly send them information on that. And there's a lot of other interviews we've done on the book that are very different from this one. This interview went very differently in many ways than previous interviews. So thank you for that opportunity to talk uh, way outside the normal box of just talking points from the chapters in the books. Oh, you're more than welcome, Mark. And uh, simply remains for me to say uh, thank you so much once again for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you.